Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? I am Ben Kissel. That's Marcus Parks. Hey, Ben. Hi, Marcus. So we had a little bit of a special episode. I did some radio shows. We had our uh, editor cobble together. I I guess it's a best of. Gobble. I don't know. Uh, So check it out. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with an episode just Mr. Parks and I very soon. Very soon. Hey, what's up everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel back here with you. I'm here tonight, tomorrow night, Monday and Tuesday of next week. So we got some good time to spend together. All right, because of Paul in Boston, we can uh, talk here about Jeff Sessions. Uh, Thank you for the question regarding his hatred of marijuana he views the drug as slightly worse or slightly better just slightly better than heroin of course the ultimate irony of that is that opioids the opioid epidemic uh oxycontin the whole thing uh is the main cause of our heroin epidemic right so we have a situation where marijuana Half of people who are prescribed medical marijuana say they kick the pharmaceuticals. They kick the pharmaceutical drugs, many of which lead to the epidemic that we're seeing with heroin. We're talking about gateway drugs here. Weed is not a gateway drug. Marijuana is not the gateway drug to heroin. Now you get that from the uh, from the drug dealer in the lab code at the doctor's office. That's where it comes from oxycodone, all those horrible opioids that they give you for pain medicine, that's where the gateway opens when it comes to heroin abuse. So why is Jeff Sessions against legal marijuana? Well, let's follow the numbers here. Number one, let's take a look at how much pharmaceutical companies have paid in lobbying. $209 million. That and more, it's more than that. 200 almost $210 million in pharmaceutical and health products lobbying the United States Congress, uh, the House, and the Senate, which is why we have these 
head-scratching um, phenomenons that are occur when we have someone like Jeff Sessions, an attorney general, supposedly a conservative that's for states' rights, evidently not when it comes to something uh, known, known as his bottom line. All of a sudden, states' rights go out the window. So let's continue on this conversation. The big pharmaceutical industry Legal marijuana, again, now 29% of the states, 60% of the country's population has access to legal marijuana. Some studies have said two-thirds of those individuals who do get legal marijuana stop altogether opioids, which, thank God, opioids kill roughly 65 thousand people a year. Uh, It is a massive epidemic affecting rural areas all across this country. It plays into the criminal uh, justice issue that we have when it comes to reform. Incarceration rates are through the roof when it comes to people doing dumb things in order to get their fix. This is all because of opioids. No one is robbing a bank so they can go buy an eighth of weed. That's not the way it works. So what is going on with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, a man who promised to honor states' rights? Donald Trump, a man who promised to honor states' rights when it comes to legalizing marijuana. This is the most this is the definition of what we want in this country. Socially liberal, fiscally responsible. And there is no denying legal marijuana is socially appropriate and fiscally beneficial to this nation. You look at what's going on in Colorado right now. Education being financed, roads being financed. Folks in uh, folks in the state getting a little bit of a tax return as well, not just from the federal level, from the state level because of all the tourism uh, and things like that going through when it comes to uh, the benefits of legal marijuana. For those who favor legalizing recreational marijuana and medical use, there is plenty of bad news in Attorney General Jeff Sessions' decision to reverse the Justice Department's previous hands-off policy towards state experimentation. He ordered federal prosecutors to, quote, to enforce the laws enacted by Congress. Again, a Congress that receives nearly $210 million from big pharmaceutical companies. The fix is in, ladies and gentlemen. Follow the money, and you'll understand why these policies are being created by these politicians that are completely out of touch with the American people because they're sitting next to the lobbyists. They got a they got a fat cat uh, in their office. They want to get reelected. Uh, what do they do? Hubba, hubba, hubba. They go with the guy with the cash. And that is exactly why we have a situation where the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, is completely opposite to the vast majority of rational thinkers in this country. He's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. Uh, he does not do this because he's trying to save lives. He's doing this because he's trying to give back the investment uh, to those pharmaceutical companies that that they after they gave him all that cash, he's got to give them something special back. Also, Jeff Sessions, as if he is some someone so concerned with the safety of the American people, uh, got mm, thousands thousands of dollars from big tobacco. 
thousands of dollars from big tobacco. So he's fine uh, with the cancer-causing uh, big tobacco, but evidently when it comes to marijuana, that's where he draws a line. Look no further than the money. It is so unbelievably obvious, and it's really causing a lot of dysfunction amongst the 29 states that have legalized it, all of which the attorney generals of all of those states have said, yeah, we're not going to do it. We're not going to go in and prosecute people who are running small businesses in this country, the backbone of this nation, small business entrepreneurship. And we're seeing that with the green rush that is legal marijuana. It is completely counterintuitive. And the fact that he is throwing this industry, $8 billion industry, into disarray isn't doing anything to benefit the society, isn't doing anything to benefit uh, our culture, and is just in uh, uh, continuing this process, which leads to over-incarceration rates, and as I said before the show, leads to lining the pockets of drug cartels. $8 billion industry, do you think that those people just started smoking marijuana because it got legal? High school rates are actually dropping. No. All of that money would have gone illegally to the cartels, untaxed, and who knows what product is coming over the border, uh, shoving it in gas tanks and uh, other cavities that we don't have to get into here on the show. Much less safe. And the beneficiaries are the El Chapos of the world. Is that what you want? A nation, Mexico, by the way, 2016, 23,000 people killed because of the drug cartels. The only other country that was worse? Syria. Syria is in a civil war. And it was Syria and Mexico that had one and two when it comes to most amount of homicides. Do we want that on our southern border? I don't think so. And that is why I am such an advocate. And this is not some hippie, I just want to get stoned uh, and uh, and listen to the Grateful Dead um, uh, thinking. I am talking about elderly folks with arthritis, such as my father. I've been trying to get him uh, to go get a medical card in Florida. Uh, this is about, this is about uh, cancer. Uh, this is about individuals who suffer seizures. I mean, this is not about just recreational, uh, let's have a good time and get high, the way that CNN presented it on New Year's Eve when they showed the person in the gas mask looking like a Batman villain. That is not normal. That's not how the vast majority of people consume uh, marijuana. It, that's the equivalent of assuming uh, watching somebody take a beer bong on spring break and assuming that that's how everyone consumes alcohol. No, you don't always beer bong your Bud Lights or your Coors Lights or your Miller Lights. Those are the three beers that I like to drink the most, in case you haven't noticed. No, you sip on it. That's how it, that's how you usually do it. Maybe a special occasion, you gotta wear the gas mask or you gotta do the beer bong. Hey, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna poo-poo on anyone's party there. But that is uh really the issue here. Criminal justice reform, 2.5 million incarcerated. We gotta change that. Many in there for petty drug offenses. Uh and uh, uh and then of course again. The, the medical use where we can get people off of these opioids and onto something that is much cleaner, much healthier, and at the end of the day, it will be very, very lucrative for everyone involved. Neil Franken, he is the executive director of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which favors legalization, had this to say 
regarding Jeff Sessions and his proposed um, intervention, I suppose, for uh, for lack of a better term, their intervention in states' rights. He says this is going to create chaos in the dozens of states whose voters, whose voters, ladies and gentlemen, have chosen to regulate medical and adult use of marijuana rather than leaving it in the hands of the criminals. This is according to, again, Neil Franken, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. The Drug Enforcement Administration could raid dispensaries that states have allowed as it did under W and as it did under Barack Obama, which, by the way, the media should have been holding Obama's feet to the fire a heck of a lot more than it did. Specifically, when it came to we we talk about immigration, the media is going crazy on Donald Trump's immigration proposals. Uh, but where were they when Obama was being nicknamed the deporter in chief? Nowhere. So the media is complicit in all of this as well. And Barack Obama did intervene negatively in states that legalized marijuana. The crackdown could amount to the last gasp of marijuana prohibition. One way to get rid of laws that are generally generally unpopular and distract uh, and destructive is to enforce them stringently by threatening an assault on a sector that has established itself across the country. Sessions has picked a fight. He is bound to lose his policy puts in puts him at odds with the 29 states including uh, the district of columbia that allow medical use of the drug together they comprise as i said earlier nearly 60% of the us population his order is especially hostile to the eight states that have legalized recreational pot these states california massachusetts maine nevada that hippie state of alaska Oregon, Washington, and Colorado, which account for roughly 20% of Americans. So this is obviously Jeff Sessions making backroom deals with big pharmaceutical companies who are so desperate to hold on to their stranglehold of the drug market, despite the fact that it is destroying families, ripping apart uh, communities, um, forcing uh, individuals into um, uh, acts of criminality they may not have committed without this extreme addiction to opioids. He is listening to them because they are the ones filling the coffers of House uh, of both parties. By the way, this is not this is this is not just the uh, the Republican Party getting a bunch of cash uh, from these individuals from the pharmaceutical and health and, uh, community, pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of America. By the way, almost twenty million dollars, and both parties are collecting the cash. Look no further than Cory Booker. Remember that? He, he would not allow cheaper drugs from uh, from Canada. Why? Because he got 60000 bucks or 600000 bucks from big pharmaceutical companies. That's why. And the American people are paying the price because these politicians are bought and sold and not looking out for us. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel back here with you. Hope you're having a fine Thursday. 
Uh, as I mentioned, we're talking about Jeff Sessions, his war on drugs when it comes to the 29 states or 60% of the American population that have legalized marijuana, at least for medicinal reasons. Uh, I mentioned how both parties are complicit when it comes to taking money from big pharmaceutical companies. So let's just go through 2017. Who got what? Two, uh, two uh, just over two million bucks were given to the Democrats. Uh, average contribution, $13,000. That was to 170 uh, members of the House. Republicans, 190 members of the House, got cash from big pharmaceutical companies. On average, $20,000. And they almost had $4 million in total contributions. Again, follow the money. The U.S. House of Representatives has 435 members and five non-voting delegates. When it comes to the Senate, much, much closer. 45 Democratic senators. I mean, how many are there? 48, 49 of them? They're all taking it. Bunch of hacks. Democrats, 45% got money from Big Pharma. Average contribution, 27000 bucks. Total contribution, $1.2 million. Interestingly enough, Republicans, only 42, not only, it's still a significant number and it's far too freaking high as far as I'm concerned, 42% got money, uh, uh, average contribution, $25,000, so they made just over a million bucks. Independence, too, they got $7,000 of average contributions, 14K. Total 89 of the U.S. Senators got an average contribution of $25,000, over $2 bucks in total contributions. So you wonder, why has it been so difficult to legalize marijuana, and why has it been such an uphill battle to have rational drug policies in this country? Why can't we get the opioid epidemic, uh, why can't we get this thing taken care of? Well, there you go right there, ladies and gentlemen. It's because the Congress doesn't care about you, they don't care about me, they care about their bottom line, and their bottom line... Uh, is helping out the pharmaceutical industry so they can run for re-election with a bunch of coin in their coffers. It is pathetic. They're horrible. They're the reason we have millions and millions of dollars being spent on the war on drugs. Over $50 billion, by the way. That's what we've wasted on this stupid drug war. $50 billion. Number of arrests, this was in 2016 for drug violations, uh, 1.5 million. Number of these arrests that were possession only, 1.2 or 80, 1.2 million or 84%, just the possession. So it's not like these people were out there robbing a bank or going to steal, uh, you know, metal uh, from some scrapyard to sell it for drugs. No, they just had it on them. And that, of course, led to their arrest, which is who pays for it when they're there? We do. So all these people out there who are like talking about we need to be tough on crime, send them to prison for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Well, you know what, buddy? You're just paying their rent. So if you want to be fiscally responsible and socially rational, you got to be for the legalization of recreational and medical marijuana. It's the only thing that makes sense to curb uh, the deaths caused from opioids and to get a little bit of money rolling through the streets around here. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Ben Kissel here with you. Hope you're having a fine Thursday night. What a great show it's been. My goodness. Can't believe we're in the final two blocks here already. Flying by. Always great to be back in the saddle here on Fox News Talk. 
uh, speaking with you. And regardless if we agree on everything, who cares? We're not supposed to agree on everything. The world's not fun if you only talk with people that agree with you. I want to continue talking here about criminal justice reform. Donald Trump, uh, he was at a roundtable. Well, let's just play some of this sound. We support our law enforcement partners. And we're working to reduce crime and put dangerous offenders behind bars. At the same time, we want to ensure that those who enter the justice system are able to contribute to their communities after they leave prison, which is one of many very difficult subjects we are discussing having to do with our great country. The vast majority of incarcerated individuals will be released at some point and often struggle to become self-sufficient once they exit the correctional system. Perhaps he's thinking about his boy, Paul Manafort. Maybe that's on the tip of his tongue. Uh, And who knows? Uh, Donald Trump, of course, has already pardoned Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And uh, so who knows? Maybe Manafort's going to be next on the old pardon list. So we're talking here. He mentioned violent criminals. All right. So let's just break that down. This is according now. this is from November uh, of 2017. This is when this uh, data was last updated. Okay, so let's talk about violent crime. Who do you think most people in prison are there because of violent crime? Do you think that that's what it is? Because if you do, you're going to be wrong. Homicide, aggravated uh, aggravated assault and kidnapping offenses, that only makes up 3.2% of inmates. Robbery 3.7, sex offender sex offenses 9.2, but the big number here 46.3% of folks behind bars for drug offenses. Does that make any sense to you whatsoever? The statistics are based, again, last updated Saturday, 25th November of 2017. So not that old of data there. I would assume that that holds to be true. Let's continue on Donald Trump speaking here, talking about turning around lives. And that's what we have to have. You know, you look at recidivism rights when it comes to um, people uh, exiting prison. Where do they go? You can't get a job because you're an ex-con. You have no money because you're not allowed to uh, earn cash while incarcerated. That's why a lot of people, if you watch the documentary 13th or read the new Jim Crow, uh, you know, they have they, they discuss Angola prison specifically built on a plantation. Uh, you know, you, you uh, eradicate slavery. What do you do? You criminalize human behavior and you find yourself another cheap form of labor. Let's play Donald Trump talking about how turning, uh, how individuals need to turn their lives around, and uh, and uh, they need some job training. We have a great interest in helping them turn around, get a second chance, and make our communities safe. Many prisoners end up returning to crime, and they end up returning to prison. Two thirds of the 650,000 people released from prison each year are arrested again within three years. We can help break this vicious cycle through job training, very important job training, mentoring, and drug addiction treatment. You know how we're focused on drugs pouring into our country and drug addiction. It's a big problem even as we speak of this subject. We'll be very tough on crime, but we will provide a ladder of opportunity for the future. 
Big pharmaceutical companies should be held to the exact same standards big tobacco was uh, in the 90s. That's what needs to happen. He's talking about uh, drugs pouring over the borders, not pouring over the borders. Uh, they're pouring out of uh, they're pouring out of our doctors' offices. They're pouring out of our hospitals. We all love America. We talk about uh, you know the land of the free, home of the brave. But unfortunately, because of corrupt politicians and horrible policies, we are not the land of the free. Colombia, only 0.9% of their inmates, only 0.9% of their population are inmates in federal prisons. Cuba, 0.7. Dominican Republic, 0.8. Mexico, 13.1. Other 5%. United States, 79%. Isn't that unbelievable? Inmate citizenship. The vast majority of people who are incarcerated in this country are citizens. That's what that says. And that is just unbelievable how we treat our own. And then we go overseas. uh, We try to let other nations. uh, We try to be a model for other nations. But meanwhile, back at home, we're not living up to the principles that we're telling other nations to live up to. Donald Trump continues at this roundtable. And I mean, you know, uh, there are obviously I, I hope that he makes the right moves here because we have people's lives, uh, uh, you know, on the line. We have families on the line. And, you know, people always talk about conservatives uh, specifically always talk about family structure, getting back uh, to having both parents at home. Well, you know what? When the system is the one tearing the families apart because of these predatory drug laws, well, you know, it, it's counterintuitive. You need to let them be home then. And of course, there are some people who need to be in prison. We already know all that. But there's a lot of people that could have had an alternative punishment. All right, he continues. The vast majority, more than 95%, will be released. What are we doing as a society? At the federal level, at the state level, at local levels, what are we doing to ensure that they have been rehabilitated and that they can be reassimilated? We're good at removing, but we need to do more than simply remove people from society. And again, I mean, you think these numbers aren't high. The Quini- a Quiniac poll, this was a survey, found that 58% of voters support legalizing marijuana outright. And what is the number that favor medical? This number is astounding. 91%. 91%. And yet we have an attorney general who feels as if he needs to go attack states that are acting in the best interest of their constituents. A YouGov poll commissioned by the Huffington Post earlier found that 56% of Americans opposed federal intervention in state cannabis laws. The new Quinniac poll survey, once again, 58% of voters support legalizing marijuana outright, 91% in favor of medical. Let's continue on with Donald Trump. The biggest thing that we've gotten done that's been successful has been mentoring programs, private I'm sorry, this is not Donald Trump. This is Governor Sam Brownback. He is a Republican out of Kansas. The biggest thing that we've gotten done that's been successful has been mentoring programs. Private, person-to-person mentoring programs. We've got 7,500 matches that we've made. Because most people, when they come out of prisons, they don't have many relationships that are reliable or, or good for them to get back on their feet. And that's cut the recidivism rate for those 7,500 in half. That's great. From 20 to under 
And I, I just think that makes sense for us to do, to help them out. All right, now let's take a listen to Brooke Rollins of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Thank you for taking this on. Uh, thank you for making it an issue. You know, I think about your great vision for America, which is to make it great again. And I think about all that you and your team have done on tax reform and regulatory reform and coming into welfare reform. Those are all things that the state of Texas has been doing for a long time, as you know. But about 10 years ago, we decided that it was time that we really look at criminal justice reform because America has 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's incarcerated. And when you think about 95% of those folks are all coming back out into communities, what can we do as a society to make sure that they are reintegrated at a successful rate instead of going back into prison, which 400 or 600,000 do? Brooke uh, L. Rollins, you can find her. Uh, if you just Google the TexasPolicy.com, that's TexasPolicy.com. Uh, she has a quote here. She says, Today's discussion was an important step toward criminal justice reform. I appreciate President Trump's commitment to an issue that will make communities safer and reunite families. She continues. So in Texas, we changed our laws. We've shut eight prisons down. We've decreased our incarceration rate by 20%, but the most important part of all of that is our crime rate is down 31% in the state of Texas, in the state of Texas since we undertook all of these reforms. This works, and it is a beautiful, beautiful policy issue because it's bipartisan. Everyone agrees that we want those who are coming back out into our communities to have safer streets, to go back to their families, have stronger families, and be able to work in the communities where they once resided. They cite on this website, again, it's the Texas Public Policy Foundation. You can find it at texaspolicy.com. Uh, past legislation, Louisiana lawmakers overwhelmingly passed sweeping evidence-based reforms to their state's criminal justice system that will safely reduce the Pelican State's prison population, the nation's highest by, by rate, by 10 percent over the next 10 years. These reforms which have been implemented in dozens of other conservative states, have shown that both lower prison populations and increased public safety are possible in concert. These changes resulted in about 1,900 nonviolent offenders being released slightly, uh, slightly early, on average around two months. Uh, to put that into context, 1,500 inmates are normally released each and every month. So they're getting out. They're getting out. And what kind of society do we want to be when they get out? Just keep on feeding the billion, billion-dollar beast that is our private prison system uh, and our state prison system. Keep on wasting just copious amount of money on housing these individuals. It is unbelievable how expensive the tax revenue that drug legalization would yield annually if currently illegally, if current illegal drugs were taxed at rates comparable to those of alcohol and tobacco. They say $46.7 billion dollars. Of course, we don't even have to get into it, but we can uh, when you want to talk about the racial breakdown. 57% of the folks that are in there for, uh, for drugs are black or Latino. Uh, here in New York City, when it comes to Rikers Island, it's closer to 98%. I mean, it is unbelievable uh, if you look at the racial disparity of individuals who are incarcerated right now and, uh, and how it immediately ties to low-level drug offenses. And again, we all agree. 
Violent criminals, put them behind bars. No one wants them in society. But for these low-level offenders, when they get out, there has to be something in place. Otherwise, uh, they're just going to have no alternative other than to go into a life of perhaps real crime, violent crime. And that's what we have to deter here in this country. And that's why what Jeff Sessions has proposed is totally counterintuitive to the safety of our nation. It's been a heck of a day for the Rand Paul wing of the Republican Party when it comes to FISA and now, of course, uh, discussing this issue. Both, uh, I believe we can find strong bipartisan support against what's going on with FISA. Uh, It is unconstitutional to have these government agencies spying on innocent civilians, assuming we're guilty as if it's some sort of thought crime or pre-crime world. Combine that with with marijuana uh, legalization being under fire by a supposedly free state, a, a uh, administration that respects states' rights. Evidently, again, they do not. Because they get money from big tobacco, as Jeff Sessions, that's what he started off his career with, and now it's all big pharma cash. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Thank you so much for listening and calling in today. I think it was a great show. Max, what do you think? Max in the control room. What do you think about the show? I thought it went by extremely quickly, Mm -hmm. and it was very entertaining, and good music choices, huh? Great music choices. (laughs) That's a little compliment to himself. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you, buddy. You did a great job. Um, All right. Well, we are back here tomorrow as well. Just to wrap it all up here, I'm going to go with this uh, Dr. Jocelyn Elders. She was a U.S. Surgeon General during the Clinton administration. She wrote an article for the American Journal of Public Health regarding uh, how uh, talking about how decriminalizing isn't enough. You just got to legalize legalize marijuana. Uh, She's a physician. Again, she was once the U.S. Tops medical uh, official is speaking out for the legalization of marijuana. This is a quote from her. She said, the war on marijuana exasperates poverty, which is strongly correlated with, among other problems, reduced access to health care. The unjust prohibition of marijuana has done more damage to public health than has marijuana itself. She goes on to say, uh, times are changing. In 2017, even physicians who oppose legalization generally believe that marijuana should be decriminalized, reducing penalties for users while keeping the drug illegal. She goes on to say, although decriminalization is certainly a step in the right direction, It is an inadequate substitute for legalization and regulation for a number of reasons. Why? Decriminalization does not empower the government to regulate product labeling and purity, which leaves marijuana vulnerable to contamination and alteration. The doctor wrote, uh, she continues, this also renders consumers unable to judge the potency of marijuana, which is like drinking alcohol without knowing its strength. Moreover, where marijuana is merely decriminalized, the point of sale remains in the hands of drug dealers, the people that we all don't want to help, who will sell marijuana, as well as more dangerous drugs, to children. In 1993, while serving as attorney general, she advocated that the country should seriously consider 
legalizing drugs. She says, quote, I do feel like we'd markedly reduce our crime rate if drugs were legalized. I don't know all the ramifications, but I do feel we need to do some studies. And we're seeing the studies now play out in real sample sizes, in real case studies, when it comes to Colorado being the first state to legalize marijuana, their governor, uh, John Hickenlooper, had this to say. He gave his state of the state speech today, and he pushed back on the Trump administration's uh, marijuana enforcement policy. This is what he had to say. He said, we were the first state to legalize recreational marijuana. But while doing so, we've helped create a roadmap for other states. And by the way, I don't think any of us are wild about Washington telling us what's good for us. We expect that the federal government will respect the will of the Colorado voters. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Ben Kissel here with you. Happy Friday, TGIF. That means thank God it's Friday. Oh, my goodness. Well, the news keeps on coming, and it's more vulgar than ever before. What do you think about the coverage here of Donald Trump? He called uh, yeah, S-hole countries, crap-hole countries, whatever you want to say, uh, referring to some African countries. Uh, CNN has put the S-word up there. Uh, I think they said it 36 times yesterday, and now it continues to be on their Chiron Uh it is what Donald Trump said, evidently, although now Donald Trump has tweeted saying that he did not say uh, that African countries are S-hole uh, countries. However, there were other people, such as Dick Durbin in the room, who says that he did indeed say it. So who knows what to believe? As always, muddy the waters, and uh, people can just kind of make up their own uh, conclusions there. Call in 877-367-2526. That's 877-367-2526. What do you think about the media coverage of all of this? President Donald Trump yesterday questioned why the United States would want to have immigrants from Haiti and African nations referring to some as, quote, asshole countries, according to two sources familiar with the comments. CNN, uh, Don Lemon has gone full out, uh, and many other people, by the way, Anna Navarro as well. She was a, uh, a, a Republican. I believe she supported Ted Cruz in, the, uh, in 2016. Don't quote me on that, but I believe she did. Uh, she's out there calling Donald Trump a, uh, a white supremacist. What are your thoughts? Uh, do you think this is something that is... Um, Racist. That, that's the big question, because obviously a lot of folks uh, do. They believe it is racist. And if you listen to uh, Donald Trump's previous rhetoric, you know, of course, aligning himself with Steve Bannon, the man who uh, the man who stole Breitbart in the wake of the death of Andrew Breitbart, uh, the man who wanted to have a website be the home for the alt-right, the alt-right, of course, the home for multiple white nationalists, white supremacist groups. I was on uh, uh, the Internet today. Stormfront, a very racist uh, website, went as far as saying that they that the comments from Donald Trump regarding African nations and uh, individuals from Haiti, immigrants from Haiti, uh, referring to them as asshole countries, prove that he is uh, in agreement with them. 
when it comes to his vision of immigration, when it comes to who he wants entering the United States of America. So what does it mean if Stormfront and if Breitbart and if the alt-right believe that this is an indication that Donald Trump is on the same page as they are? And of course, when I say they, I mean white supremacists. Birds of a feather, I suppose. That's the main concern here. Even I, we interview, uh, I have an interview coming up here with Kaylee McEnany uh, a little bit later on in the show. We'll talk about this uh, regarding the comments. Uh, you know, she says that he is not a racist. Uh, there are a lot of his supporters saying he is just talking as everyone talks. Uh, but of course, he isn't everyone, is he? He's the president of the United States. And in the context of the conversation of, of immigration, it's a significant use of verbiage. It's a significant uh, use of language because he is creating policies that are going to have real-world effect on the lives of the individuals that he is uh, disparaging. So that's why it's different than you or I at a bar eating peanuts, slam, slamming some Coors, uh, talking about, uh, you know, crap hole countries. Uh, it's different than you and I talking about it because, again, he is a president who is in the midst of creating a policy that is going to have a direct impact on those individuals. And that's what gives it a difference that's what makes it more significant. But I want to hear your thoughts. 877-367-2526. That's 877-367-2526. Donald Trump's remarks made in the White House came as Democratic Senator Dick Durbin and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham briefed the president on a newly drafted immigration bill being touted by a bipartisan group of senators. According to the sources, who asked not to be identified. And I'm with you on that. As soon as you hear not identified, it's like have some cojones. Put your face and your name where your words are. I'm so sick of unidentified sources. Identify yourself. Other government officials were present during the conversation. According to sources, the lawmakers were describing how certain immigration programs operate, including one to give safe haven in the United States to people from countries suffering from natural disasters or civil strife. One of the sources who was briefed on the conversation said that Trump said, now this is a quote, one of the, one of the sources who was briefed on the conversation said that Trump said, why do we want all these people from Africa here? They are crap hole countries. We should have more people from Norway. If you don't believe the first half has a racial undercurrent, the conclusion of wanting more folks from a country that is 99% white really underscores the point or nails the point home that race may have been on the president's mind. And again, we have real Im we have real life immigration issues in this country. We all know that. Breaking news, immigration is a big deal. I know, stunning information. This could not have come at a worse time when they're attempting to get bipartisan support for rational immigration reform in this country. And if you are a Trump supporter, if you are someone who wants to see the end of what Democrats call family reunification, what Republicans call chain migration, if you do want to see us go to a merit-based uh, immigration approach, which I think is rational and reasonable, 
and I I don't believe that that is uh, mean spirited or or uh, uh, having a negative impact. I think the people uh, that deserve to be here should be here, and it's a disservice right now to do the lottery program when you have someone who knows English, when you have someone who has an education, when you have someone who loves this country who wants to be here, and they get passed over because it's a lottery. That's not fair to them either. But we're trying to get bipartisan support for immigration, and we have the president of the United States sitting there throwing fuel on a racial fire for no reason. Another self-inflicted gunshot, another self-inflicted wound coming from Donald Trump himself. He's the Kurt Cobain of presidents. Terry McAuliffe, uh, he was given an interview, and this is where the discourse is now. Of course, Terry McAuliffe, establishment dude, big with the Clintons, governor, the whole nine. I believe, yeah, he's just he's a career politician. This is what he had to say regarding Donald Trump and uh, Chris, Ma- he's on here with Chris Matthews. This is a clip from MSNBC. He's on here with Chris Matthews, and Matthews is like talking about how uh, you know Trump was sort of stalking Hillary Clinton during the uh, during the debate, and uh, and uh, Terry McAuliffe has this to say regarding if Donald Trump did that to him. And this is regardless if you like Donald Trump or not. This is a sitting president of the United States, but this is our discourse now. And you know, Hillary's a friend of yours, and she's a strong person. But even did that thing of leaning over her in that weird, yeah. weird kind of, I don't know what, Godzilla way during the debate. What would you do yeah. in a debate with him if he tried that? If he come over and leaned over back of you? You'd have to pick him up off the floor. <laughs> okay, okay. You mean you'd deck him? Listen, this guy got my space. You want to get my space? I've always said, Chris, you punch me. I'm going to punch you back twice as hard. Well, it would be hard to do it. I don't know if Tara McAuliffe has always said that, but now we are at a point in our country where the discourse has gotten to the point where we are openly discussing decking sitting presidents in the face. Everyone's to blame here. Let's go to Mark in Missouri. Mark, thanks for calling in, brother. What's going on? Hey, good evening. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm doing fantastic. Good. And I just I just called to point out the fact that everything this president has done, said, from when he went down the stairs on that escalator, oh, he's out, he's gone, he's done. Well, that's true. Well, I'm just saying, uh, he's he's proven uh, different. Well, that's, uh, but Mark, that's a I, no, that's an interesting minute, point, Mark. I, but I, I know I want to talk about that for one second because that's an interesting no, point. If no. if you remember, uh, he got a little flack from certain parts of his base when he met with Nancy Pelosi. A lot of people thought, oh, he's going to be soft on immigration. He's going to give in on DACA, something that I'm for and for the DACA kids. But I digress. Do you think this was a play to his base so he could wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and say, "Hey, guys, I still got it." No, I really don't. I really don't. What this is is the real world. I'm out here in the country, and I work every day, and I work hard, and I take care of my family. I do all the things that have to be done, and I voted for that man. And I'm not here. You know, we've had presidents that were, oh, so presidential. That's gone. There's just crazy stuff going on right now. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be so loud. And the bottom line is, when he makes a statement like he did, which like it or hate it, let's look at those countries. Is he right? 
Well, you know, those countries, after a devastating uh, earthquake, and uh, eight years ago today is the anniversary, it's just not... Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the call, brother. Um, you know, the question is, do we want a president um, speaking in that way? I'm going to get into a little bit of our immigration policy here when it comes to those nations as well. Let's go to Rick in Chicago. Rick, thanks for calling in, man. What do you want to say about this? I, I just feel that, first off, I, I, I don't understand why a, a gentleman like Dick Durbin, uh, behind closed doors would repeat what Trump said. I don't understand what he has to gain by saying that other than create more chaos mm. when they're trying to get this deal done. So so why why repeat those things that Trump said? So what would you have preferred him to do there? Just kind of keep that under wraps? I mean, perhaps he did think this was something that the American people should know. Well, he's not telling the American people anything that they don't know. Trump is a fly-by-the-night kind of guy. He always speaks what he thinks, and everybody knows that. He's got a history of it. That's just who Trump is. And it's not – if he's looking to try and get people to turn on him, Trump's supporters aren't going to turn on him for saying something like that. And like the gentleman said before me, it, it, it's true that those, those third-world countries are just devastated with, with poverty, crime, mm-hmm. and everything else. I, I, I mean – I'm not trying to be rude about it, but but I mean, in in a way, Trump was speaking the truth well, about those countries. Also, if it was in the context of like, yeah, they're crap hole countries, let's go help them out. I think that that might be a little bit different. But this idea of we, we don't want people from those countries because they're going through uh, economic despair. We want people from Norway. I I don't. That doesn't really fly. Well, we 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 are helping those people out. You can't tell me there isn't Haiti any Haiti people here or or Honduras, or, or any of those other countries, they're, they're here, well, and that, we are helping them as we speak. 59,000 Haitian immigrants are here right now. Uh, however, that might their status uh, is changing. So we'll get into that conversation after the, break, uh, after the break. Thanks for calling in, Rick. Appreciate it. Let's take a quick break now, and we'll come right back. Yo, what's up, everyone? How are you? Ben Kissel back here with you. We're talking about Donald Trump's controversial comments yesterday calling African uh, people who come from African countries, he refers to their nation as a crap hole. The Afri- This is an interesting stat, however. African foreign-born have a higher level of educational attainment than those uh, born uh, uh, than the total of those born overseas. The report said, this is according uh, to a recent report, 41% of the African born had a bachelor's degree or higher compared to with 28% of the overall. All right, let's go to Mike in Black Earth, Wisconsin. I did, I'm from Wisconsin. I've never heard of Black Earth, Wisconsin. Hey, Ben, great show. Thanks, uh, Black Mike. Earth is about uh, 18 miles west of Madison, downtown. Oh, all right, all right, beautiful. What do you want to but say about Trump's ask, comments? Trump isn't stupid. He really isn't stupid, and I think that he has good situational awareness about him. So if he's in a meeting, uh, I think he probably has a general idea of what he's saying and how he's saying it. And I, I think that he, he might be playing, you know, everything the guy does, he ends up uh, smelling like a rose at the end of the conversation. It's kind of well, weird. I mean, so it, does that make it better if you think that he uh, understood the significance of what he was saying? He's not he's not a polished politician. I don't think that this moves the ball forward, but in right. terms of his base and expanding the base, 
you know, most people in America would look at the, the countries and not appreciate what he had to say about him, but they could agree with um, the intent of what he is saying about him. So I think he's, it's, it's, it's another example of uh, uh, a national conversation about something very important. And right. I think that he probably needs to learn how to temper himself to help himself. Well, that's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. We have a very uh, significant piece of legislation that needs to be crafted here, and now we're sitting here talking about crap hole. CNN still has the S word all over their screens, and we're not talking about DACA. We're not talk. We're not even talking about the border wall. If that's what no, he wants no, to be exactly. discussing, so is this is this a win for Donald Trump somehow? I, I don't see it. I, you know what, Ben? I, I don't think it's a win right now, but I think it's going to be a win later because that's just how karma goes for the guy. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Appreciate the call, brother. And you know, um, there is no denying that base that Donald Trump has. Yeah, I don't. I don't see it shifting. I don't see this being a situation uh, that does erode the support that the diehard Trump supporters have for him. Does it make it stronger? Uh, and what does that say about us as a country? I see you there, Carmine. Let's just take a quick break, and uh, we'll get to your phone call. We'll keep this conversation going. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Ben Kissel back here with you. Hope you're having a fine Friday. Hopefully you're off work or soon to be off of work. Whatever you want to do this evening, hope you have fun doing it. All right, let's go to Carmine in Pueblo. I believe it's Colorado. We're discussing Donald Trump uh, referring to African countries as crap holes. All right, Carmine, thanks for calling in. What do you want to say about this? Hey, no problem. Um, I guess all I really have to say is I think there's bigger issues to worry about than something that flew out of the president's mouth. Mm-hmm. We help out a lot of countries. Yeah, we I do. spent 21 years in the Air Force. I've done a lot, and I can say that I've been to countries that, without a doubt, the average person would pretty much use that terminology. But, now, but that's what I know, was talking he, about a little bit before. He's not the average person, right? He's the president. Correct. He's not. He's the president of the United States, which means he's you know, in charge of the biggest superpower on the planet. Right. So he is a guy. Uh, he is a uh, human being. Mm-hmm. And if you, anybody thinks that presidents and congressmen and, you know, anybody with power doesn't speak that way behind closed doors, you know, I mean, this is what happens. I mean, we've had President Bush was a fighter pilot. I guarantee you, you know, his language wasn't always the best. I understand that he's the president. He should maybe watch what he says a little bit, but I don't think it's worth making this much. But what about, in the, a, what about in the context of professionalism? This wasn't behind closed doors. This was a bipartisan meeting. Uh, this was an official meeting. I mean, it, Richard Nixon even kept it relatively clean in public. And, and I agree with that, okay? I'm not saying it could have uh, couldn't have been said better, mm-hmm. but hey, hats off to him. He's saying what he thinks, and he's kind of known for that. And that's what makes him different than the other presidents. It's not all just lip service. And every once in a while, he shows he's human. Well, he you definitely. Know? I mean, yeah. If if he, error is to, he, if error is human, then yes, indeed. Well, I haven't seen a president that hasn't made a mistake yet, but I've seen them, you know, do a lot to cover up their mistakes once they get caught. He put it right out there and said, "This is what it is." He's looking out for the best interest of our country at the core of that statement. I don't think he intentionally put anything out there to sound racist or to say, 
hey, I'm white, I'm special, I only want whites in the country. I don't think that was said. But it just amazes me how nobody wants to get behind the president as much as they want to. I'm not going to say nobody. There's plenty of people behind the president. But sure. I think people just kind of need to learn how to shut up in color sometimes and just go along with it. He's not trying to do anything except make the country better. Thank, thank you for your opinion, Carmine. Appreciate the call. I, you know, when it comes to race, again, that final part of the conversation, we says, hey, why not folks from Norway? Oh, you know, that's where we really start to get in uh, to some tricky racial territory. But uh, the point is made and the point is accepted when it comes to the United States giving billions of dollars uh, in aid to countries all across the world. In 2015, the U.S. provided more than $8 billion in assistance to 47 sub-Saharan countries, uh, and U.S. aid maintains 27 regional and bilateral missions in Africa. As of March 2014, 20 African countries carry foreign debt of nearly 390 billion dollars so so that point is heard and that is another uh, example of american outreach and what our country does to help out nations that are in need so let's remember that uh and 390 billion dollars that is more significant than two uh, i'm just going to say stupid words coming out of president trump's mouth so that is true and and let's and that's why i also you know here on the show we try to be measured we try to be moderate we try to be rational and the rationality of it is they want that we are giving them billions of dollars donald trump did say something I think racially insensitive, I think inflammatory. It doesn't negate the fact that the United States is still doing great things in helping countries that are in need. And uh, and my only concern is with that $390 billion, hopefully it's going to the people that actually need it. Uh, so many times what happens as we give foreign aid, uh, every single step along the way someone else opens up their wallet and takes a couple of bucks out of the coffer takes a couple of dollars um out of the uh out of the tithe trough and saves it for themselves so that's where a lot of times you see where is the money going well, the rich seem to get richer and the poor continue to struggle but let's put this in context of my uh, of of immigration once again in november the trump administration decided to end the status of immigrants from haiti and nicaragua it gave approximately 59,000 haitian immigrants who had been granted the status until july 2019 to return home or legalize their presence in the united states so it does seem as if there were some uh, ability to no longer be seen uh, as perhaps a refugee, but perhaps now you can go about the process of becoming a legalized citizen uh, here in the United States. Nicaraguans were given uh, until January 2019. Now, this happened this week. Donald Trump moved to end the status of immigrants from El Salvador, which could result in 200,000 Salvadorians legally in the United States being deported beginning in September of next year. So that's why 
uh, when we talk about, and as, as we've been talking about with the callers, and thanks so much for calling in, always appreciate your opinions, even if we happen to disagree. That doesn't matter to me. It's about keeping the conversation going and trying to find some common rational middle ground. And I think all of us agree that this wasn't helpful uh, to the conversation whatsoever, to, even if someone might agree with the overall notion that those nations are indeed struggling. And, uh, and I think there is a lot of uh, agreement about that. 877-367-2526. That's 877-367-2526. But the question here is, and the reason why this matters, is because we have real-life policies being enacted by a president of the United States who said that these nations are crap holes, and that's why it matters. It's different than just you and I talking again, uh, you know, at a bar or wherever it might be. Where do human beings talk? Coffee shops? Do I think coffee shops also, <laughs> or a sporting event, whatever it might be. Um, but that's why that's why it carries a little bit more uh, significance. Let's play this clip here from Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, and there, he's discussing um, chain migration. Again, uh, people on the left say that's family reunification and uh, the diversity lottery program. The president is willing to grant legal protections for this population of illegal immigrants in return for adequate security and ending extended family chain migration and ending the diversity lottery. There's no change to those parameters. Okay, and now I want to play uh, really the guy here who kind of broke this story. He's the Democrat. He's out of Connecticut. Dick Durbin. Uh, this is what he had to say. There will always be sticking points. We have to compromise. It's the only way to get this done. Uh, it's not a bill I would have written by myself, nor one that uh, Lindsey Graham would have written by himself. But we've tried to meet the president's criteria of things that are important to include, and I think we were very close to doing that. Again, a second source familiar with the conversation said that Trump has vowed to clamp down on illegal immigration, also questioned the need for Haitians in the United States. Many Democrats and Republican lawmakers have slammed the president's remarks. Republican U.S. Representative Mia Love, she's been quite vocal when it comes to her praise of Donald Trump, but has split with him, specifically during the more racially insensitive uh, times of his administration. Republican U.S. Representative Mia Love, a daughter of Haitian immigrants. So what can Haitian immigrants bring us? Well, U.S. Rep. Mia Love, Republican, said the comments were unkind, divisive, elitist, and fly in the face of our nation's values, and called on Trump to apologize to the American people and to the countries he has denigrated. What do you think that would do? Donald Trump apologizing. Is his tweet from today where he says he didn't say it, it never happened? Is that the closest we'll ever get to an apology from Donald Trump? Another Republican representative, uh, Alina Ross Latinen, who was born in Cuba, I'm sure I completely butchered uh, the last name there, was born in Cuba and whose, uh, whose South Florida district includes many Haitian immigrants, said, quote, language like that shouldn't be heard in locker rooms and it shouldn't be heard in the White House. Let's play what Representative Louis Gohmert had to say. Louis Gohmert, 
Uh, he looks like Yellow Bastard from Sin City. I'm just going to say it. I've said it before, and I'm sorry. But that is what I always think about whenever I look at this guy. He's a Republican dude. He's out of Texas. He was on Fox News. And this is what Louis Gohmert had to say regarding the Dreamers. I'm not going to defend his language, but I will defend his frustration. I mean, here we've got people, and the only people they want to talk about being dreamers are people that came into the country illegally. And many of them, you know, mm. we talk, the people picture young, precious little people, and that most of them, middle, or a lot of them are middle age. It is so frustrating. And every time, every time anybody in Washington talks about legalization of anyone here illegally, the Border Patrol says they get these surges, and they've been getting them since August. And so it is a frustrating time. Gomert, uh, of course, the average age of the DACA kids, yes, they are older now. Time keeps on ticking, I've heard. Into the future, they are older now, but the average age when they came was six. Some as young as three, yeah, sure. Some as old as 13, 14. Again, so I've seen, I've heard some people say up to 91% are employed. Uh, I believe the number is closer to 75, but uh, they are employed. They uh, they have jobs. They speak English. I have uh, spoken to many on my political show, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, uh, one uh, in Alabama football fan, by the way, roll tide. What an unbelievable game this past Monday uh, going against Georgia. I guess I wasn't really rooting for either team. I'm from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We did not have a football team. However, there was um, uh, some unbelievable action in that game, and it was an extremely exciting game going into overtime. But these DACA kids, these DACA adults now, are just like you and I. You couldn't tell them, you can't tell them apart. I want to go back here. This is from, uh, it's a little bit older, but this is the Census Bureau report from 2008 to 2012. It was outlined, this this outlined um, African immigrants, okay? Although the foreign-born populating from Africa in the U.S. is a small, is small relative to other foreign-born groups, a higher proportion of Africans are graduates than overall foreign-born population, and their numbers have grown rapidly over the past 40 years. Again, the U.S. Census Bureau reporting the foreign-born population from Africa in 2008 to 2012, the report based on American community surveys focusing on the foreign-born population from Africa highlights its size, growth, geographic distribution, and educational attainment. It indicates that African foreign-born population has grown from about 80,000 in 1970 to around 1.7 6 million that was in 2008 to 2012 the african born population accounts for about 4% of the total us foreign born population no single african country makes up a majority of these immigrants although four countries nigeria ethiopia egypt ghana comprise for about 41% and as i said the african born had a higher level of educational attainment than the total of those born overseas. The report said 41% of the African-born had a bachelor's degree or higher compared with just 28% of the overall uh, number of immigrants in the country. High levels of education 
um, high levels of educational attainment among the African-born are are in part due to the large number of educated Africans who have chosen to immigrate and to many who come to the United States to pursue academic studies. Within the foreign-born population from Africa, educational attainment varied by the place of birth. For example, 64% of Egyptian-born individuals were graduates, as were 61% from Nigeria, 57% from South America, 47% from Kenya, and 35% from Ghana. So when we talk about these countries being crap holes, that doesn't mean the people that are coming here aren't coming here uh, seeking an education and trying to make this country great. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Ben Kissel back here with you. Hope you're having a great Friday. Uh, we'll just continue this conversation for a little while longer. We got a little bit more sound, and, you know, then I guess we can just kind of move on. I, it, it's one of those things where, okay, Donald Trump said something off-the-cuff inflammatory, Angering a lot of people. I believe it was uh, unpresidential and uh, racially ignorant. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we have to move forward in this country and just try to get some rational policies put forward. Let's uh, play this sound here of Dick Durbin. He's talking about how it all went down when it comes to Donald Trump uh, uttering this, uh, this sentence. Senator Lindsey Graham and I made our presentation. We've been working for four months, six senators, three Democrats and three Republicans, to, to create a bipartisan way to deal with the crisis we face, where more than 700,000 uh, Dreamers protected by DACA are going to lose that protection starting March 5th of this year by 1,000 a day. As Senator Graham made his presentation, the president interrupted him several times with questions and in the course of his comments uh, said things which were hate-filled, vile, and racist. You know, uh, you, you hear that and then you got to think about that Michael Wolff book, Fire and Fury, inside the Trump White House. Um, and, you know, he's talking about how Donald Trump gets bored easily. In meetings, either stands up and leaves or interrupts, it seems to align with what Dick Durbin is saying. Dick Durbin continues. I use those words advisedly. I understand how powerful they are. But I cannot believe that in the history of the White House, in that Oval Office, any president has ever spoken the words that I personally heard our president speak yesterday. All right. And Dick Durbin continues here. You've seen the comments in the press. I have not read one of them that's inaccurate. To no surprise, the president started tweeting this morning, denying that he used those words. It is not true. He said these hateful things, and he said them repeatedly. All right, ladies and gentlemen, keep the calls coming. 877-367-2526. That's 877-367-2526. I see you there on the line right now, but we got to take a quick break, and I'll get to you right afterwards. Oh, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Happy Friday. Ben Kissel here with you. All right, we're talking about Donald Trump. Do you know what happened? I bet you do because uh, you're a human being with ears and eyes. 
Oh, Donald Trump. So uh, yesterday he called uh, African countries crap holes, and the fallout continues. Let's go to the phone lines. Let's go to Waterbury, Connecticut. Cliff is on the phone. Cliff, thanks for calling in, hey, brother. Man, thanks for taking my call. Absolutely, you know what, man. I get it. So you know what? I get it. White women lie on Trump. White Republicans lie on Trump. White Democrats lie on Trump. Black Democrats lie on Trump. The media lies on Trump. Trump consistently tells the truth. I got it. You, you think you think that there's no truth to anything that's ever been reported about Donald Trump? Whatever Donald Trump says is true. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. That, that's what goes. Everybody else is lying. Trump is the only one that's telling the truth. That seems like it. that seems a little dangerous. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so now here's my point. I believe Donald Trump speaks to the consciousness of the majority of white Americans. No mm. question about it. What do and you mean? People feel, what people feel, he has the audacity and the courage to say it. So I believe he's going to be reelected, renominated. He's going to do eight years because that's what the American people want. He wants to make America great again, and he's doing it. Well, I'm Go interested. Trump. I'm interested. Are you in favor of Donald Trump uh, being reelected? You know what? It's going to happen. Really? Without a doubt. As a matter of fact, he's going to go in in the eyes and in the sight of white America. He's the best president that ever served in this country. Well, I'm a white American. I I know a lot of white Americans that are not in favor of Donald Trump, what he stands for, what his worldview is, what he believes. Shut your mouth. Really? Absolutely. I don't know. Uh, I I don't know personally know any Trump supporters other than my uh, appearances here on Fox News uh, and my job uh, where I interact with people from all walks of the political aisle. But uh, no, I don't think that he represents white America. Uh, really, the majority of white Americans, I don't believe it. Um, but uh, but of course, I, I suppose the proof uh, is in the pudding on that. huh? I'm just saying, I could be wrong, but we'll listen to your listeners and your callers and see what they say. Thanks well, my call, ben. But, of course, Cliff. Thanks for calling in, brother. Uh, you know, of course, we are in. Uh, we are on uh, Fox News Radio. This is a this is a sample uh, of the uh, of the uh, country, uh, but uh, but not representative of the whole. Um, all right, and also, uh, Cliff brings up 2000, uh, 2020. I want to talk about Oprah, but we'll do that here coming up here after this phone call from Rick in Roan Mountain, Tennessee. Love Tennessee. Thanks for calling in, Rick. What do you want to say? Yeah, first off, I want to say I don't agree with the term white Americans. I, I we're all Americans. Well, we all right. Distinguished by color. Uh, I don't see skin color. I see heart color. Okay. And, but talking about Donald Trump, talking about DACA, everybody's talking about like this is his mess. Mm-hmm. No, this is this happened long before he even thought about running for office. He pulled it and gave it to Congress and told them to do their job. Uh-huh. Now, the previous administration had all three branches of government, and what did they do? They didn't finalize it. They kicked the can down the road. He went to he come into office to keep from kicking the can down the road. Well, Rick, to be fair, Obama only had uh, he had the House. Uh, he had the Senate there from 08 to 2010. But going forward, he had lost the Democrats had lost control. I mean, hence the gridlock to quote General Stockdale going way back to 1992. So he didn't really, but but I do understand your point. Obviously, they were able to push through uh, the ACA, but they didn't do DACA, yeah. Yep, and like I said, he kicked, he kicked more or less just kicked the can down the road. Like I said, I don't agree with 
Trump said it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the terminology, uh, I understand his frustration. Yeah. And like I said, that we should not have that lottery because we don't know who's getting the uh, immigration status in the lottery. Well, that's true. And that's and I think that's where there is a lot of common ground. Again, Chuck Schumer introduced a bill back in the day trying to get to a merit-based immigration policy. But then it's just, you know, it's just um, a guy when you when you're too drunk and you try to leave the bar and you trip over your own two feet. Uh, that's it just seems to yeah. happen on a regular basis. But it's not his feet. He just trips over his own tongue on a regular basis. And it hurts the conversation. I look at it as as this way. I mean, I'm not defending when he does when he shoots himself in the foot. Mm-hmm. He's been Donald Trump his whole life. Mm-hmm. He's only been president for 11 months. Right. And like I said, and, you know, even with, with Obama, I took everything with a grain of salt. You got and, to. And, and, and so forth. And like I said, we're just so, so, so uh, we need to be thicker skinned than what we are now. All right, brother. Th- thank you, Rick. Appreciate the call, my man. And, uh, you know, when it comes to being thick-skinned, um, that is one of the criticisms of Donald Trump. It's like, dude, stop paying attention to the media. Who cares? You're the president. You are the most powerful man on earth. Uh, it doesn't matter what peons like myself uh, say about you on national television. Uh, you are it. You know, he, he really gets uh, in the weeds and gets into a lot of arguments with people that, quite frankly, are beneath him. I want to point this one story out because I think it's significant. And I just want to give a little praise to this guy while we're on the conversation of, of immigrants and what do they provide for our country. Many of them join the military. And I want to highlight this one guy, Private Emmanuel Mensa. He went off to serve in the Army National Guard, came back, and this is where, it wasn't overseas where he gave his ultimate sacrifice. It was here. Mensa died trying to rescue people from his burning apartment building. This was last month. It was in the Bronx here in New York City. In the deadliest fire in more than 25 years. Mensa, he's a 28-year-old man, uh, immigrated from Ghana in Africa and was a permanent legal resident in the United States. His story has taken on a new meaning now, of course, uh, in the wake of of Donald Trump's um, words. This is according to Mayor Bill de Blasio, who, by the way, I am not a huge fan of, the guy who uh, is trying to chastise uh, Jeff Sessions for going after states that legalized recreational marijuana. Meanwhile, he doesn't want it legalized recreationally here, despite the fact that Rikers Island is overfloweth with people who are there for petty drug offenses, but I digress once again. This is according to Mayor de Blasio. Private Emmanuel Mensa was a first-generation immigrant, a soldier, and a New Yorker. He gave his life rescuing his neighbors in the Bronx. His heroism exemplifies the best of our city. Rest in peace. So I just wanted to give a shout-out uh, to this individual, and I just want to re- remind everyone, we all have to um, remind ourselves these these are individual people, uh, and uh, we have to try our best not to generalize groups of people and remember. And I know uh, the the people in this country, we the, the vast majority of people in this country believe this to be true. 
Uh, we don't want to generalize. We want to look at individuals for who they are, not from where they come, not uh, what their parents did, um, but who they are. And so I just wanted to highlight this man, uh, thank him for his service post-mortem, uh, Emmanuel Mensa saving lives uh, here in New York City in just a horrific, horrific fire. And if you saw the footage of it, my God, your heart has to break imagining the, uh, the final moments of the individuals uh, who weren't able uh, to make it out alive. It killed 13 people, this fire, including uh, four children. I believe a, uh, a young child started the fire by playing uh, with the kitchen stove. And uh, it was just a heartbreaking story. But let's remember, uh, heroes come from all walks of life. Uh, they come from all nations. And uh, this man, uh, who again fought for our country and gave his life in this country, fighting for Americans, uh, trying to get them out of a burning building. Let's not forget it. Um, all right, everyone, let's take a quick break and let's move on. I want let's talk about Oprah. What do you think? Should we talk about Oprah? Let's do it. Why not? I I grew up watching Oprah. Uh, my mother would actually let me stay home from school and we would watch Oprah together. I believe it was two thirty uh, in the afternoon she came up, maybe three p.m. And uh, I have fond memories. Do you think she should run for president of the United States? And if she does, what does that mean? What are are we officially an oligarchy if we just continue to have billionaires run, billionaire business people run for the presidency of the United States? Is that what an oligarchy looks like? Is that what we deserve? Does celebrity Trump political accomplishment? Is that where we're at? Let's talk about it. 877-367-2526. That's 877-367-2526. Give me a call. I want to hear your thoughts on Oprah and whoever else you want to see getting involved in public life. All right, I'm Ben Kissa. We'll take a quick break and come right back. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Happy Friday. All right, let's talk about Oprah. She won this award, the Cecil B. DeMille Award. Uh, that was, she was the first black woman to win it. Uh, that was at the 75th annual Golden Globe Awards at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. You know, I never really liked these award shows. A bunch of wealthy people uh, talking to another bunch of wealthy people about how much they love poor people. That's basically all these awards are, and it's always kind of infuriating. Nonetheless, she gave a very impassioned speech. At this award show, again, winning the Cecil B. DeMille Award, and the rumor mill uh, kicked into full gear regarding a potential Oprah run for 2020. Let's go to the phones. Durham, North Carolina. Katie is on the line. Katie, thanks for calling in. What do you want to say about this potential for the queen, for Queen O, to become the next president of the United States? Hi, Ben. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Very excited to be on. Thank you. I'm excited to have you on. It's exciting stuff. Um, I really, <laughs> like, I love Oprah. Don't get me wrong. Uh -huh. I'm a huge fan. My mom also kept me home from school to watch Oprah every day. It was the but best education we could have possibly gotten. I know. I learned so much. But I don't think that she should be running for president. I okay. feel like... It's enough. It's bad enough we have the world's worst reboot of The Apprentice happening in the White House <laughs> right now. Um, so I'm really over it. I feel like we all should kind of be over it as a nation. Mm -hmm. And the real thing 
I think we need to focus on is education for yeah. people who aren't super rich right. and, you know, totally mm-hmm. have money coming out through Wazoo, aren't running this country and only benefiting them and their self-interest. So do you think, I mean, there's a double standard possibly happening here. Uh, the New York Post, obviously a newspaper that endorsed uh, Donald Trump after, uh, again, her award speech. They said, nope, uh, but can the Republican Party or people who supported Donald Trump, they don't really have any leg to stand stand on or any ground to stand on, rather, when it comes to opposing a wealthy billionaire celebrity running for office. No, I totally agree. They're kind of, you know, they sound very hypocritical if they're going to be totally, totally Trump and totally against Oprah. Right. Because it's kind of the same size of the boat or different size of the same coin. Rather, you know, they both have crazy amounts of money. And yeah, they have opinions. And I could watch Oprah read the ingredients on like, you know, a box of oatmeal. Uh-huh. But it's not what's right for America, and I feel like it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and keep creating a separation between the government and the actual citizens. What do you think about this idea, as I mentioned before the break? We live in—it's uh, it's really an oligarchy at this point in many ways. Uh, big corporations—you know, this is always the balance you try to find between government and corporations. We need to find a healthy balance. Right now, there's no doubt that pendulum is swung in the way that corporations have— more power in a lot of ways than government, obviously footing the bill for a lot of these politicians, as we talked about yesterday, with Big Pharma. What do you think about the fact that she didn't get a million dollars from her father or her parents? She's a self-made, multi-multi-millionaire, billionaire, uh, mil- millionaire for years until becoming a billionaire. Um don't you think that kind of work or that kind of profession might aid itself with the current uh, status of our country? No, I totally love that she's kind of, you know, she's definitely an underdog story, and she went through a lot, and obviously to get to where she was, she had to do a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. But I just don't feel she has a political excuse me, political experience to back that up, because everyone, you know, has an opinion, but I just feel like, you know, maybe hers might be a little skewed. She might have some self-interest trying to keep certain things. I don't know if she has, like, weird offshore bank accounts. Who I don't knows? want to think that about Oprah, but who knows? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can't really trust rich people at this point, I feel like. All right. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate the call. Have a great night. I'm sure you will. Durham is a beautiful place. Love North Carolina. I want a home in North Carolina so bad because the weather is just ideal and you get this perfect kind of mix of uh, intelligent uh, conversation mixed with some good old-fashioned local southern hospitality, uh, which I love. Um, All right. Yes. So who knows what's going to happen? I would like to see. I have no problem. Uh, if Oprah wants to throw her name in the ring, as I said on HLN, I think it was on Tuesday or Monday of this week, uh, go for it. I want the Democrats to have uh, 20 options, and I want all of them to have a unique perspective on the world, and I want the left uh, to have some options. I just felt 2016 was such a dry year for the left with the superdelegates already going and supporting Hillary before the first vote is cast in Iowa. I mean, really allowed this whole the system is rigged rhetoric uh, coming from Bernie Sanders to solidify and really uh, hook in to the minds of a lot of the American population because uh, we saw it firsthand. It did look like the fix was in. And in many ways, uh, if you go back and read Donna Brazil's book, 
the fix was indeed in. So if Oprah runs, uh, you know, I think it'll be an exciting 2020. But you know what would be even better if she ran for Congress or if she ran for Senate, starting small, uh, not necessarily taking the top uh, prize. Uh, a lot of people, again, including Eugene Robinson, he's a left-leaning individual. He loves Oprah, but he wrote an op-ed on January 9th saying she should not run for president of the United States. Uh, and I do understand this sort of dystopian uh, election. If it's Oprah versus Donald Trump, idiocracy has come much quicker than we expected, I think. Um, it would be an interesting uh, election, to say the least. And I'm sure every news network would love it. You talk about ratings. Donald Trump is like, they need me. They need me for ratings. Well, you know who beats him in ratings? Oprah Winfrey. So I'm sure just as Donald Trump got $2 billion worth of free press in 2016, Oprah would uh, match that or perhaps get even more. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Hope you're having a nice, fine Friday. Hope you cracked a couple of beers at this point. Or if you're sober, I hope you haven't. Look at that. Maybe you got some medical marijuana or some recreational marijuana. Be careful. Don't do what that did that dude did on CNN with the gas mask, unless you don't have to go anywhere for the weekend. That's my high recommendation on that. We were talking a bit about Oprah. Again, she won the Cecil B. DeMille Award. And this is where she gave her speech. This was at the 75th Annual Golden Globes. And this caused a stir, and a lot of people said, she should run for public office. Is celebrity enough to be president of the United States? That is the question. 877-367-2526. 877-367-2526. And speaking of these Golden Globe Awards, I wanted to talk to you briefly. It's not political, but it is a little bit. Uh, well, it is. I mean, everything is a little political these days, isn't it? Uh, but it, there is a story about class. Uh, a story about gender, and that story uh, is the story of Tanya Harding and, of course, Nancy Kerrigan. This movie, I, Tanya, Allison Janney, I believe Allison Janney did win the Golden Globe. She is amazing in this film. She plays Tanya Harding's mother. I also like her. She's six foot two. I'm six foot seven, so us tall people got to stick together. There's not a lot of us uh, on account that we die very young. That's about circulation, and that's about... That's about uh, that's about blood to our heart, blood flow. Do you think Tanya Harding uh, is uh, getting off too easy in this? Uh, the movie is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Uh, this guy, Sebastian Stan, he plays Jeff Galuli. Margot Robbie, she plays Tanya Harding. You know Mar uh, Margot Robbie, she was um, uh, Harley Quinn. And uh, she was also in The Wolf of Wall Street. My friend Henry Zabrowski was in The Wolf of Wall Street as well. She plays the wife of, uh, of the main dude there. Again, Allison Janney, she plays Lavana Golden. That's, uh, that's Tanya Harding's mother. And then, of course, this guy, Paul Walter Hauser, he plays Sean Eckhart, who is the fat, morbidly obese, uh, wannabe bodyguard, wannabe ninja, um, jack-of-all-trades. Uh, specifically if you put the word off after Jack of all trades. That's exactly what he is. But the movie really hit on this theme of economic 
inequality and someone who is poor trying to live in a world of the wealthy. Of course, in this context, that is figure skating, but this can apply to anything. I want to hear your thoughts on the film, on uh, how it portrays Tanya Harding. Do you think Tanya Harding is, in fact, a victim in all of this? Or are we forgetting that Nancy Kerrigan, she grew up, um, you know, upper middle class, not a billionaire or anything like that. She's not Ivanka Trump, for crying out loud. Just a relatively uh, normal Um, American upbringing. She's the victim. But of course, we kind of lose sight of that specifically uh, in the wake of I, Tanya. And then as we talk about class uh, and gender in this country, uh, Tanya Harding did not have an easy go of it. She was physically abused. Look to judging from the film, from the cradle to uh, to uh, up to this point in her life. Now, evidently, she's a mother. She's got a couple of kids. She said she's a great mother, which is awesome. I'm happy she's doing well. But what do you think? Is Tanya Harding this idea that she is in fact a victim? Does that play into this victim society uh, or this victim victimhood culture? Uh, that some people believe we are currently embracing in this country. 877-367-2526. That's 877-367-2526. In a new interview, Tanya Harding admits some prior knowledge of Nancy Kerrigan's attack. Uh, In the film, it makes it seem as if she had no idea that Sean Eckert, this total moron, they are so inept. The ineptitude is what's so fascinating. Criminals are so dumb. We forget it it can be the, the dumbest of us that cause some of the most damage to people who are trying to accomplish something in their life. And that is what, that's the definition of Sean Eckert. But now Tanya is saying, well, she knew something was going on. Evidently, what they did want to do was scare Nancy Kerrigan. They wanted to send her some uh, messages, some death threats. Tanya says she didn't know she was about to get uh, beat uh, with a baton in the knee. She she says she had no clue that that was going to happen, but was completely on board with this notion of uh, of having Nancy Kerrigan scared to death, so scared she wouldn't skate. So obviously, Tanya Harding isn't uh, in the best moral standing here when it comes to um, athleticism and the rules of, of fair uh, competition. Former figure skating champion Tanya Harding was one of the most accomplished skaters in the United States, well, in her prime, but of course her legacy is overshadowed by her association with the 1994 attack on fellow figure skater Nancy Kerrigan that temporarily took her out of competition. Although Harding herself didn't attack Kerrigan, the assault was planned and carried out by ex-husband Jeff Galuli and his friend Sean Eckert, and Harding seemed guilty by association to many for many years. She denied any prior knowledge of the plan for the attack, now has made a bombshell confession. She says, I did, however, overhear them talking about stuff. They were talking about skating and saying, well, maybe somebody should be taken out so Harding can make it. 
877-367-2526. Do you think it's appropriate uh, for us to be living in a time where our sympathy doesn't lie with the person who was battered, but it lies with the person who aided and abetted the battery? And again, Tanya Harding, rough go. Her parents split up. Uh, she didn't seem to have many good relationships going on through life. Uh, this Jeff Galuli guy seems like a real scumbag. I mean, anyone that would um, uh, beat their significant other, I mean, this is horrible stuff that no real man would ever do. And as a society, we've got to be very strong and always take that position. Tanya Harding admitted to having at least some prior knowledge of an attack on another skater while speaking to ABC News' Amy Robach for the two-hour Truth and Lies, the Tanya Harding Story TV special on ABC. She was careful to also state that she heard Jeff Galuli and Sean Eckert mentioning taking somebody out of the competition a month or two before the attack, but the fact remains that she had an idea ahead of time that something could be done to one of the other skaters ahead of the U.S. National Championships. Back in 1994, Nancy Kerrigan was a darling of the figure skating world, known for her grace and poise. In contrast, Tanya Harding was known for her, for her athleticism as a skater and her attitude that was somewhat less poised than what was then expected of figure skaters. Well, that's interesting, right? An, a an attitude that doesn't fit the norm. Haven't we just been talking about that for the past, well, and uh, yesterday as well, and, and throughout this show when it comes to Donald Trump? An attitude that doesn't fit the norm. Is that, what we, is that where we're at now as a society where we really start to uh, praise and put on a pedestal the people that might not have the most moral character? And how will that affect or how has that affected American politics and American life and celebrity as a whole is, again, going back to the questions with Oprah, is celebrity enough? Is that all we need? Is that all we need as a society to have name recognition? It saves you millions and millions of dollars in political uh, terms. Most politicians, they're not famous to begin with. They go up through the traditional political ranks. Maybe they're a staffer at some point. Much like Jonah in the television show Veep, who goes on to become a congressman. And he really he went through a lot. If you recall Patton Oswalt's character cupping his testicles. Not good. Max, did you ever see Veep? Max in the booth? No, I never seen you, Veep. Dude, I heard it's gotta, a great, great Veep, show. It's the best comedy. I'm saying that Veep is the greatest political comedy in the history of the world. I love Louis Dreyfus. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Louis of course, from Seinfeld. That, Seinfeld is my all-time favorite show. So there's no really reason for me not to watch Veep. I know she's won some awards, but I still think she is underrated. I think she's one of the greatest comedians of all time. So charming, too. Oh, charming. Beautiful, yeah. wonderful, funny, smart. She is. She should just be president. Just is that where we're at now? Where it's like Julia Lewis Dreyfus just just show up in, on twenty uh, in twenty nineteen. Say you're actually running for president. Is that any different than what we got with people who watched The Apprentice? As Katie called in uh, before the break and was like, "This is Apprentice two point or Apprentice in the White House or the worst season of Apprentice that is the Donald Trump uh, presidency." Would that be enough? 
Is that where we're at now uh, as a society when it comes to celebrity and politics? And are we honoring uh, the celebrities that should be honored, or do we have to um, rethink who we put on a pedestal in this country if we want to try to get back to a place of high moral standing? This is the greatest song of all time. Rebecca Black. Oh, keep it playing. What a, this is the best, this, this song was recorded in a mall, right? I think it was, right next to a Build-A-Bear. Yeah. Good for her. It is Friday. She nailed the day of the week. I love accuracy in songs. Rebecca Black, absolutely crushing life. I think she received death threats for that. I, I thought that was they were too mean to Rebecca. Leave her alone. It's Rebecca Black, right? I think it's Rebecca Black. What a talented star. If I think about Friday, I think about the two greatest things of all time. Of course, the restaurant, TGIF, although it's a lie, as I said, six days out of the week, and Rebecca Black for Friday. Powerful stuff. Well, let's just continue talking here about uh, this Tanya Harding movie. Nancy Kerrigan, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, uh, and again, in the context of, of class, and because I want to talk about uh, 1994 because I'm 36 and this reminds me of a better time. Oprah started all of this. I remember when Oprah was talking about this scandal. I I think she had uh, Nancy Kerrigan on. I'm not sure if if she had them on together. She should have if she didn't. Maybe that seems more like a Geraldo move. Geraldo was like, are you a Klansman? Are you a Black Panther? Come on the show at the same time. Nothing could go wrong. One broken nose later. Nancy Kerrigan has better things to do right now than see I, Tanya. She says, quote, I've been busy. I was at the National Figure Skating Championships this week, so I didn't watch the Golden Globes. I haven't seen the movie. I'm just busy living my life. She added, I was the victim. That's my role in this whole thing. That's it. When asked if she was bothered by the film's portrayal of Harding as a victim, Kerrigan sighed. At this point, it's so much easier and better to just be, it's not really part of my life. Tanya Harding still causing a kerfluffle. Her publicist uh, has just quit because Tanya Harding evidently uh, wanted reporters to have to pay if they were going to ask her questions about the 1994 Winter Olympics incident. But you know what I say, Tanya, you get that money. She needs the money. Again, got to see this movie. I, Tanya, uh, incredible film about class in this country. 877-367-2526. That's 877-367-2526. Do you remember where you were the day that Nancy Kerrigan screamed why? I, Tanya, uh, again, a, a fantastic film that is doing extremely well. She was actually there. Tanya Hardy was actually at the Golden Globe. She was sitting at uh, the table with Margot Robbie, Allison Janney, the whole group, the whole crew. She was thanked by Allison Janney for sharing her story. What do you think that says about us as a country? Of course, when the story broke in the early 90s, I mean, Tanya Harding was probably, if they said in the book, or in the movie rather, that she had name recognition on par with the Pope. She was everywhere. Everyone knew who she was, and no one liked her. 
But I always had a soft spot in my heart uh, for Miss Tanya Harding. And anyone who has ever been uh, from nothing, anyone who comes from nothing and gets out there and makes something of their life, I will always respect. I think it does make you a little bit um, angry. And I think it does make you a little bit more controversial. Again, Harding says she knew something was up of of Galulis, and that's a Galuli is a perfect last name for Jeff because it sounds stupid and he is stupid. He's got to be one of the dumbest human beings in the history of the country. One of the most hated human beings, by the way. Still, the movie didn't do him any favors in that regard. She says, "I did, however, overhear them talking about stuff where, well, maybe we should take somebody out so we can make sure she gets on the team." I go. What the hell are you talking about? And again, Kerrigan not interested in rehashing the situation. What do you think it says about our culture that Tanya Harding is uh, the national figure that is coming out uh, and the person that's been praised when it comes to the incident that happened in 1994? We love a good story. We love a good comeback. We, we love when someone comes from nothing and makes uh, something out of their lives. Is that going to be what Oprah talks about? Coming from Chicago, uh, obviously she does have a lot of connections going to Oprah here. I don't think Nancy Kerrigan or Tanya Harding will be running for 2020. But is that a narrative that Oprah could cling on to? You have celebrity. You got name recognition. Uh, you got billions and billions of bucks. You got the Obama machine, which no doubt will be taking over from the Clintons who purged the Democratic Party of talent for decades. You have the Obama machine behind her. The story of, I started from the bottom, now I'm here. Could that resonate with people in 2020? Billionaire versus billionaire. You no doubt that would lead to billions of free press for both of them. All right, this is Fox News Talk. I'm Ben Kissa. We'll take a quick break and come right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? How you doing? Make sure you stick around. My interview with Kaylee McEnany coming up here in a couple of minutes, around the 8.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Mark. She's got a new book out, The, uh, the New American Revolution, The Making of a Populist Movement. Kaylee McEnany. So check that interview out. She's a great person. She's extremely uh, intelligent, articulate, uh, all the nice things that you can say about someone despite uh, having uh, disagreements politically. But again, we got to look past that. I was talking about Oprah in the last hour, and I just saw this story. Sean Spicer says Oprah uh, could not be president due to her lack of political infrastructure, which is uh, hilarious coming from Sean Spicer. I want to talk about this story. Uh, violence against politicians. It, it seems like it is becoming more regular, doesn't it? I don't recall. I mean, I remember when W had that fellow throw his shoes at him. That was one thing. But now we got a time where Steve Scalise is walking with crutches. I disagree with this guy politically on almost everything, but I don't care. You don't shoot a guy. He's walking on crutches. We had Rand Paul, who I used to agree with a lot more until he endorsed until he endorsed Roy Moore. He's still not in my good graces, although I do agree with him on his anti-FISA stance, but it's still going through, so he didn't do anything to stop it. Senate's going to vote and most likely pass the dang thing. 
And now we have a situation where a fella was watching the Rachel Maddow show and drinking. Now, evidently, this is a combo that is dangerous, specifically when we have a little app called Twitter. Drinking while watching MSNBC's The Rachel Maddow Show, this led this led to death threats via Twitter against Republican Mitch McConnell and uh, Scott Pruitt, of course, the head of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. The unidentified person, is a person from Arkansas, said they meant the threats as a flippant comment and sent the tweets when they were, quote, drinking while watching the Rachel Maddow show. I don't know. Uh, I guess what do you do? Maybe you play a drinking game every time they say collusion or Russia. You have a sip. And then within about four minutes, you're drunk enough to tweet death threats to Mitch McConnell and Scott Pruitt. What do you think all this says about our culture? The violence going on against political figures on both sides of the aisle. This is breaking news. A Democratic candidate running for Illinois Attorney General, this guy Aaron Goldstein, he was robbed at gunpoint yesterday during a campaign photo shoot in Chicago. This is a guy running to clean up the streets, and he's robbed at gunpoint during a photo shoot. What does it say about our culture that politicians are getting robbed, they're getting death threats, they're actually getting shot? You look at Gabby Giffords. Let's not forget Gabby. Of course, still uh, struggling with speech and everything. She's doing great, my, from my understanding. Uh, Jared Loeffner, this lunatic. What does it say about our society when it comes to violence against political leaders, both figurative and literal. The Chicago Tribune reported that Aaron Goldstein, he's a 42-year-old dude, and members of his campaign were approached by three men in their early 20s. One of the men had a handgun and demanded Goldstein and the campaign aides turn over the camera equipment and other personal belongings, including their cell phones, which they did. According to the Tribune, law enforcement sources confirmed they had no one in custody and did not release a description of the suspects. Goldstein's campaign manager, Robert Murphy, who was not with the candidate at the time, explained that he was taking promotional campaign shoots with a in-the-neighborhood, this is quote-unquote, in-the-neighborhood kind of message. Well, he definitely felt like he was in the neighborhood because they got robbed. And I'm not one of those people being like, Chicago, 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 when it comes to gun violence. Chicago is actually in the top 20. I think they're around 13 or 14. New Orleans, St. Louis, Detroit. It's a lot of dangerous places. So this politician, he wanted to go have an in-the-neighborhood kind of vibe for his campaign shoot. And my friend, he got it. This story is crazy to me. Murphy, a Chicago committeeman, told the Tribune that no one was harmed during the robbery, and the campaign was assured by the police that the robbery was not a targeted act. Goldstein's campaign Facebook page posted a link to the Tribune article with the comment, Thank you for all your concern, well wishes, thoughts, and prayers. My team and I are all good. So we got an AG in Chicago who getting held up at gunpoint by three dudes. 
because they're trying to do an in-the-neighborhood kind of vibe feel for a campaign flyer. We got another person drinking while watching Rachel Maddow eh, sending death threat tweets to Scott Pruitt and Mitch McConnell. The threats were serious enough, that going back here to the guy trashed watching Maddow, the threats were serious enough for the Office of Investigations to open a joint inquiry with the FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the Tulsa Police Department in Oklahoma. The case report was entitled, Twitter Threat to Murder Administrator Scott Pruitt and Senator Mitch McConnell. The tweets were were directed at McConnell, and the individual said they also included Pruitt because they, quote, did not like Ambassador Pruitt's record of suing the EPA. Uh, this dude sent the tweets on, or I mean, it might be a woman as well. I, I guess we don't know. So this person sent the tweets on April 8th, 2017. The episode, which aired on a Saturday, would have been a repeat of Maddow's Friday night show. During that night's episode, Maddow discussed the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court calling McConnell and Republicans radical for ending the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. I want to ask you this. A lot of people blamed uh, Sarah Palin, the Tea Party, when it came to Gabby Giffords. I mean, I thought they acted irresponsibly. I really did when they came to the Crosshairs ad. Talking about politicians, putting crosshairs over politicians that are supposedly soft on the Second Amendment, supposedly anti-Second Amendment, which gun sales under Obama skyrocketed. Everything was great for the gun industry. They've actually slowed under Trump, which is interesting. But when it comes to people, political commentators specifically, people who have radio shows like myself or go on television and say things, When's it too far? When do you say something that drives someone to a point where they have such blind rage because of something that you've said, they find the need to either tweet something uh, negative, tweet something violent, or actually commit an act of violence at your behest? This is according to Maddow. This is uh, evidently what got this person all riled up. She said, when Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died on a ranch in in western Texas last year, only a few hours had passed before the top Republicans in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, said that, the pres- said that President Obama wouldn't be allowed to put a justice on the court to replace Justice Scalia. Maddow said, he said, quote, the, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. And of course, the person that Donald, uh, the person that Barack Obama rather had appointed, Merrick Garland, I thought Merrick Garland was a fine, uh, was a fine choice, obviously stalled for almost a year. Because of this, a person decided to tweet out a series of death threats. It's very interesting. And again, going back uh, to this Democratic uh, candidate running for Illinois Attorney General, robbed at gunpoint. What does it say about our culture? What does it say about our country? When uh, we have people doing things like this to uh, individuals who are running for public office. It definitely seems as if there is uh, uh, less of a admiration for political figures. Did Donald Trump contribute to that anyway? Has he uh, has he made it so politicians, as I said at the top of tonight's show, the difference between you and I talking at a, in a bar or, or in a car is that we don't have any power. But when Donald Trump talks, he does have power. 
as of March of 2014, when he calls when he calls African countries crap holes, it's not like if you or I would say it. I wouldn't say it anyway. Well, maybe a specific one or something if they're going through, uh, you know, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of corruption. There are corrupt uh, countries in Africa. Everyone knows that. But it matters. What people say matters, and we're seeing it uh, play out uh, in real life. So we got to be careful out there. Yo, hello. What's up, everybody? How are you? Ben Kissel here. Happy Friday. I hope you have some fun weekend plans. We're just about to get to the conversation from the author of The New American Revolution, the making of a populist movement, Kaylee McEnany. You gotta check this book out if you're someone like myself who um, I've been reading a bit of that fire and fury inside the Trump White House, which is fascinating and kind of almost it's almost pornographic. It's almost political smut because it is so. I mean, it's out there. Um, but check out this book as well, and 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 vice versa. If you're gonna read the New American Revolution, read uh, Fire and Fury, and you can make up your mind. Uh, you can have more information to make up your mind and come to a plausible conclusion or, uh, yes, when it comes to uh, what's real and what's not. All right. Well, just to wrap it up here, when it comes to Donald Trump and foreign aid, as of March 2014, again, as I said earlier in the show, 20 African countries, and this is, of course, on the heels of Donald Trump calling them crap hole countries, 20 African countries carried foreign debt of nearly $390 billion dollars. One African country alone lost uh, the U.S. $11.7 billion to illicit financial outflows between 2000 and 2009. A 2016 United Nations Economic Commission for Africa report indicated that one of the major factors in the increasing levels of corruption in Africa has to do with the blind eye often turned to corruptors by Western countries. By corruption, um, but corruption manifests itself in other ways. Recently, the regime in Ethiopia signed a mem- uh, memorandum understanding to pay the Washington, D.C.-based firm SGR Government Relations and Lobbying $150,000 per month for lobbying service for an annual total of $1.8 million. So because of the corruption, uh, Donald Trump has said that he will be uh, limiting money to these countries. USAID's philosophy is based on ending, quote, unquote, extreme poverty by maintaining a large welfare program of food assistance, balance of payment, and general budget support and rural income support programs and providing other development aid for African countries. In 2015, the U.S. provided more than $8 billion in assistance, as I said earlier, to 47 sub-Saharan countries, and USAID maintains 27 regional and bilateral missions. In Africa, the Trump administration appropriately, I suppose, questions how much of the aid given by the U.S. to Africa is susceptible to corruption, fraud, abuse, and waste in Africa. So that's the serious stuff behind the the verbiage that Donald Trump used in that bipartisan meeting, or is accused of using uh, initially the White House didn't deny it, but then again, Donald Trump today on Twitter uh, denied it. But there are real issues when it comes to the U.S. sending money to these countries. Where does it go? How much corruption is involved? There's a great documentary on Netflix, Poverty, Inc. 
I highly recommend it. Poverty Inc. It shows you a lot of these corporations, a lot of these so-called nonprofits. Well, you know, a lot of people are making a lot of profit in these nonprofits. They take a lot of money and very little goes to the actual people that need it. As a matter of fact, there's a negative effect, an unintended consequence of something like our rice, for example. Subsidized rice. We give it to them for free. So you got a farmer in, uh, you know, Ethiopia, wherever, and they're farming, uh, working hard, making rice, trying to sell it, but they can't because the market is zero. They can't compete with that. Everyone's going for the free rice. Why would you spend a penny if you can get it for nothing? So the long-term effects of U.S. aid has been negative in a lot of circumstances. Not in all, but in some. Specifically when it comes to the market, and I use rice as the example. That's used quite regularly in that documentary, Poverty, Inc. It's on Netflix. Or if it's not, it should be cheap on uh, on iTunes or something like that. After six decades and tens of billions of dollars in aids and loans from the U.S. and other Western countries, Africa remains, this is what they say here, quote-unquote, a beggar continent, hopelessly addicted to handout, uh, to handouts. And that's got to change. So there are some serious issues that we have to have in this country. There's serious conversations that we have to have in this country about these serious issues. And again, as I talk about here with Kaylee McEnany, uh, Trump just kind of gets in his own way by saying these things flippantly off the top of his hair, like no one's listening. But it's like, dude, you're the president. You got to understand um, the best way to, to, to approach this stuff, because now again, CNN has the S word on the Chiron. And all we're talking about this, all we're talking about is is. Uh, is is the word he used and racism and how it's a racist remark and all this stuff. But all that aside, we have real issues that we've got to start tackling in this country. And perhaps the news media does it on purpose uh, to not have to talk about these issues where both sides are complicit in creating a world that is uh, destabilized because of U.S. foreign aid. But I just hope we can actually have that conversation and not get too caught up on all the rhetoric. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the new American Revolution, the making of a populist movement. Kaylee McEnany, McEnany, the author, coming up after the break. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am Ben Kissel. I am honored to have with me the author of the new American Revolution, the making of a populist movement, Kaylee McEnany. Is wow. with me. Well thank done. you. Thank you. I got one last name correct. In all of my interviews that I've ever done, I have always butchered them, but not for you, Kaylee. I got it right because this is very, uh, this is serious stuff here. And it's a tough last name you got right. Well yeah, done. Thank very you. Very good for a Friday night. <laughs> I'll take it. So this book is incredible. Obviously, uh, in the context of we were just talking before the uh, before the interview, in the context of this Michael Wolf book, the the fire and fury inside the Trump White House, you bring a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, specifically when it comes to what the reaction was of Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump on election night. Right. Because, uh, of course, Michael Wolff says that Donald Trump was horrified. He didn't want to win. He was stunned uh, you know, that the victory happened. But what was your take on that? Well, it was so interesting because I was over at the RNC when the Wolf book came out, and it was days before my own came out. 
And I've got to tell you, I was so puzzled when I started to read his account of election night. Yeah. He talks about, as you said, the president being horrified and the Trump team not wanting to win. And he bases almost entirely his account of election night on Steve Bannon's, uh, at this point, discredited account of what happened. Steve Bannon said something that was discredited? Right. (laughs) Stop the whole show. Turn back the car. That's insane. Yes, it's insane. But, uh, you know, I spoke to multiple sources, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, Laura Trump, and their account of election night is so different, so different. They talk about how when Donald Trump first became president, they're crowded into a small kitchen in Trump Tower. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump read his pre-planned acceptance speech and said, nope, this is not what I want to do. This hits the establishment, not the tone. I want to strike, ripped it up, right. said, I want to speak to all voters, including the crying Hillary voters I see on the screen. So yes. not the actions of a horrified man. All right. So when it comes, you're also an RNC spokesperson. I should mention that. I should I have am. mentioned that up top. But, you know, we do things a little bit different here. <laughs> um, when it, You were also on, in 2016, you were a regular panelist on CNN. And it was you and uh, Jeffrey Lord. You were basically the only two Trump supporters on the panel of like 100 people. Uh, explain that experience, or let's get into that experience as someone who does a lot of television news as well. There's, it's, it's a high. It's fun to go on TV and argue, and uh, and uh, and the theatrics behind it are kind of invigorating. How was it defending Donald Trump? And we can bring that to to, to today, uh, as of yesterday, with the with the asshole comments regarding uh, countries, African countries. It's difficult to defend Donald Trump. How did you do it? Well, I believed in him. I do believe in him, his candidacy and both and his presidency as well. But as you mentioned, you know, it was tough. The deck was stacked against me on every panel. Mm-hmm. At first, it was one on seven. Then when I got lucky, Jeffrey Lord could accompany two on six. Uh, and it was tough. And I, I think what made it tough was not so much the extraordinary number of liberals, both to my left and right, but the fact that they always focused on the salacious, the gossipy. I went back and explored Mm -hmm. the topics CNN covered after each of the debates, and it was birtherism and Donald Trump Mm. using Spanish and saying bad hombres and always caught up in in the politically correct uh, narrative of gossipy palace intrigue and never the issues the American people cared about. Honestly, they helped Donald Trump win. CNN helped Donald Trump win. Well, one of the interesting um, things that we learned from the 2008 16 election is that once again the old adage no uh, no press is bad press they say Donald Trump got po- uh, perhaps 2 billion dollars in right. free media right and and look you know CNN always focusing on the most extreme aspects of a debate. You know, I remember after the first debate here literally the topic of discussion on mm-hmm. CNN was how Donald Trump looked in a split screen with Hillary Clinton, how he was drinking water too much and his breathing patterns were a bit off. And that's the kind of thing that I think the American voter looked at and said, man, these guys in Manhattan and these newsrooms in CNN, they're out of touch. It's not what I care about. I'm not voting on Donald Trump's breathing patterns. So what is it then? Why is because if you look at the economy right now, things are going fairly well. Sixty six percent of the uh, of the American people say the economy is either good or excellent. But yet you still have the approval ratings for Donald Trump mid 30s. What do you why is that do you think? So, I'm glad you asked that question. Something I haven't gotten into yet, Ben. Um, you know, to get to your answer and this story will kind of be illustrative of, of what I want to say. You know, after election night when I was sitting in the CNN green room, I was sitting alone kind of taking in the moment. It was 1 a.m. I had just gotten off set. I was taking in that Everyone Donald Trump would be president. Everyone else was miserable, but you were you were Everyone happy. was miserable. Were you a little bit stunned that he won? Uh, you know what? 
Yes and no, because when I went home to Florida, you know, my mom and grandmother are sitting right behind me. We'd drive through Florida and see all these Donald Trump signs, and I'd think, he's got this. And then I'd come back here and sit (laughs) on those sets, and I'd be like, I don't know. You know, they're all telling me I'm crazy. So, yes, I was a little stunned, for sure. I I think everyone was. Um, But as I was sitting in that green room, I saw a man come to the door and look to the left and the right and then scurry in and whisper to me, I'm a cameraman. I voted for Donald Trump. I can't say it too loud around here. Right. And then a makeup artist did. And, you know, my long answer to your your question is there are hidden Trump voters out there. And I saw it at CNN on election night. I think folks, when when someone calls and says, hey, do you approve or disapprove of Donald Trump? They hang up their phone. They Mm -hmm. don't want to talk to pollsters. I'm not sure that those numbers are reflective of, of true approval of the president. So even given what we learn now with Alabama, Roy Moore was a special candidate. Uh, I think he was fatally flawed on many reasons, for many reasons, mainly because he's a theocrat. I think Luther Strange would have won that race, and Alabama would still be red today. But if you look at what happened in Virginia and New Jersey, we have the midterms coming up. Do you think uh, that the Democrats, do you think they're going to be able to roll? And if they do, is that an indictment on Trump? Or does he survive the same way that Obama survived during the wave of Republicans in 2010? You know, I think you the three races you mentioned are so interesting because two were blue states. Virginia's a blue state. New Jersey's a blue state. Alabama was a unique race. I we think there's g- no arguing Roy yeah. Moore was a unique candidate, right? Yeah. Um, and the people of Alabama were the jury in that situation, and they, they didn't vote for him. Um, but that was an aberrational situation. I'm not sure Alabama's reflective of what we're going to see across the nation. And I think we will actually— Put, put it here, my prediction here, I think Republicans Uh-oh. will expand their majorities. Okay. And you can have me back after and, and I'll, yeah. you know, eat crow if I'm wrong. Oh, but... my God. I am so done with the prediction game. I have been wrong 100% of the time, which that's that's an accomplishment in its own right. Well, I was right in 2016, <laughs> which means my record can't last for too long, right? I was yeah. right once and, and then it's probably go down for there. But um, I, I think we'll expand our majorities. I when really you, do. The name of the book here, The New American Revolution, The Making of a Populist movement. Explain what Trump's populism is and explain what that means, because, you know, I I am personally completely against people, as I mentioned uh, with Roy Moore. I'm also not a fan whatsoever of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who says he's going to run in Arizona, might maybe split the uh, split the vote uh, of Trump supporters with Kelly Ward. Who knows what happens there? Explain what the populist movement means to you and what Trump brings to it. Well, the populist movement defies party lines. It really does. You know, you saw a complete animosity and anger towards insider politicians. Yeah. And you saw it with on the left with Bernie Sanders and you saw it on the right with Donald Trump. You know, I I say in the book, the farther you were from Washington, the more likely you were to get the most coveted job in the city, the more likely you were to get to the White House. And don't forget about Lincoln Chafee, the populist movement he was bringing to the left as well, trying to go back to metric. Oh, my goodness. That's (laughs) an old name, isn't it? The cornerstone of his campaign. It's going back to metric or going to metric. Well, I'm like, I forgot he even existed. I know, we Glad all you did. brought him. <laughs> we all did. But um, common problems on both sides. There's so much anger and rage against the establishment. Different solutions, right. obviously, one democratic socialism, one this outsider brand of, of Trumpism. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to me, populism is really looking out for the people because there's a person who was ignored in this country, and it was the factory worker, yep. the blue collar man and woman across this country. And they're the ones that determine this election. And, mm-hmm. you know, if Donald Donald Trump speaks to those individuals, solves their problems. I think we may have another Reagan in the making, but it, it depends on
hands on having solutions. Well, you know, uh, I don't know how people, a lot of people who supported Ronald Reagan don't take too kindly to the uh, to the comparison. Uh, there's obviously a lot of difference in, um, in personalities between Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. I, I want to ask you if there's ever been a moment where you said you can't defend Donald Trump, but you had to because of the job. Um, but before that, I want to talk about, obviously, this crap whole country thing. Uh, Donald Trump speaking flippantly about how he wants folks from Norway, not uh, Nigeria or uh, a series of other African countries. At the same time, we have a situation where African-American unemployment in this country is at really an almost an all-time low, uh, around 4.5% or so. How can Donald Trump um, mend is if is it possible to to mend a little bit of the divide that we're having in this country right now because of gender because of race? Obviously, he's attempting to do so with economics. If you look at some of the small business legislation and things like that being put forward, what can he do better to just just kind of get the olive branch out there? Because you mentioned in your book that Donald Trump ripped up the former speech that was just about attacking the establishment. He wanted to unite the Hillary supporters. I was at a party that was all Hillary supporters. It was like a funeral. It was it was so sad. Um, it was it was like legit uh, difficult yeah. for people to handle. What can he do better in that respect? How can he t try to uh, turn the ship a little bit and actually unite the country? Well, you know, I, I don't know that there's anything Donald Trump, the president, could do. And I say this because I think we are in highly partisan times. You look at yeah. the Obama years, partisanship was at a historic high that's yeah. continued into the Trump presidency for whatever reason in the last decade. If you're a liberal, you can't be friends with a conservative. Yeah. If you're, and likewise, back and forth. And I think the solution to uniting us amid divided times, there's nothing Donald Trump could do right uh, to bring us together. It's really, as I get into in my book, you know, the factory workers I interviewed, one a Bernie Sanders supporter, one a Donald mm -hmm. Trump supporter. But every day after lunch, they play euchre, they play cards together, yeah. and they you know, laugh about politics, joke, and just enjoy one another. And I really right. think the solution to unity lies not in the president, um, it lies in the people. How many Bernie Sanders do you, uh, supporters do you think went over to Trump? I know we got our boy Harlan Hill, who is a who is a character who I love to debate on television. How Wait, big... was he a Bernie Sanders supporter? He was a Bernie bro Wait. who went for Trump. That was his whole thing. It Are was... you serious? Yes, I can't even. I know Harlan, but I, I have didn't a know special that. place in my head where that's bald because I was like scratching it so much, been like trying to figure it out. How many Bernie supporters wow. do you think went over to Trump? I think there are more Bernie Sanders supporters who sat out the election. Mm. So what the Bernie Sanders supporter at Carrier Manufacturing told me is that their union, the rank and file, not one Hillary supporter in the primary. And then for the general, their their leadership endorsed Hillary Clinton. And what he said was there were hidden Trump voters in the factory that turned out. Sure. But a lot of the Bernie Sanders voters stayed home. Okay. Some reluctantly voted for Hillary. They didn't trust her. They didn't like Benghazi. But a lot of mm -hmm. them stayed home. So I think the absence of showing up right. was more the Bernie Sanders voters' uh, way of manifesting their uh, dislike for Really, either candidate, I think. Right, right. And we don't have to talk about Hillary too much because, I mean, obviously, uh, she has been discussed before. Uh, <laughs> so let's stick with Donald Trump. And I want to stick with your role as a television, obviously, now with the RNC. More behind the scenes, but obviously still in front of the mic. Um, is, was there ever a time now or then that you said, I got to walk away from Donald Trump because whether it be the Access Hollywood tape or she's bleeding from her wherever or Ted Cruz's father killed JFK? Uh, was there any ever a time where you felt morally you could not stand by this person? No, there wasn't. And, you know, I believed in him as a person. And I look at 
the behind the scenes person that not everyone What's is the difference between the behind the behind the scenes Donald Trump and the Donald Trump we see on camera. There's there's a big difference. You know, Ben Carson and Mike Huckabee, two people who I interviewed for the book, you know, they explained to me the person behind the scenes. It's mm-hmm. not the person everyone sees. And and Ben Carson it said that before after the Access Hollywood tape came out and right. before that presidential debate, he watched Donald Trump pray for forgiveness before he walked out on that stage. And Ben Carson asked if he would spend some time talking to one of his pastor friends, James Robison, and Trump spends 10 to 15 minutes with most people, spent an hour and a half. So I think there's a, a soft side to Donald yeah. Trump that you don't always see because he has and to have the strength. Do to- you believe that wasn't just a shrewd political calculation on his part to get the evangelical support? I don't. Do you think he really believes uh, what uh, what he's what he's learning uh, through these leaders? I do, because several of his family members shared the person he was with me uh, before he ran for president, when there was obviously no political calculation involved, that the man who, when a Harlem basketball team lost their benefactor, silently showed up, monetarily paid for all their basketball jerseys. So there's a, there's another Donald Trump, but as Ben Carson said, when you're running for political office, you can't show that soft side, mm-hmm. especially when you're up against several media networks that are out to destroy him. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We will be right back with more Kaylee McEnany. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am Ben Kissel. Sticking with me, Kaylee McEnany, the author of The New American Revolution, The Making of a Populist Movement. Thanks so much for sticking around. So when it comes to Trump, what do you think is – because I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this. I I mean, I believe there's good in everyone. Um, I I don't believe – you know, other than maybe Roy Cohn, Cohn, uh, the lawyer that was his inspiration, I've heard some negative things about him, but I never met the guy. I have no idea. Why do you think he would do something or say something like he said yesterday regarding uh, the nations of Africa? Is he just trying to be funny or can you – do you have any insight into the thought process of why he would say something like that in a bipartisan meeting? Well, it's it's hard to make a comment on those statements because President Trump has, first of all, denied them. And Tom Cotton. I don't think he denied the ones from yesterday. He said they were tough. He said he talked tough, but he did not use that word. Okay. And Tom Cotton says he does not recall those words being used either. Okay. Uh, Senator Perdue said the same. So it's hard when you're not when you don't have a direct transcript of the meeting to comment on them. Right. But when I when I read the comments, and obviously he said there was tough talk, and I don't know the exact words, you know, it was very clear to me that he was trying to get at this idea that, you know, there are governments out there that, that are that are very bad. I don't think it was sure. an indictment of any, any sort of people. But obviously he's fighting for an immigration system that prioritizes the people who most want to be here, the right. people who have learned our language, the folks who have garnered the skills that we need for openings and, and job opportunities in this country. Yeah. So, you know, that's the issue he was speaking to. As for the direct words, you know, he's denied using that. The DACA recipients are, are people who have done just that, I Absolutely. think. So when it yeah. comes to, I mean, because that's the thing. I, th- I think there is a lot of um, common ground. I was talking about on the show yesterday. Three out of the four things that they're proposing, DACA reform, uh, a merit-based um, immigration approach, and doing away with what the Democrats call family unification or reunification, uh, and what Republicans call chain migration, um, I believe immediate family should be allowed to come, and then we can't we can't have everyone. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a friggin' wedding. Um, <laughs> but uh, when it comes to the wall, I think that's where a lot of people are like, why are we wasting 19 billion bucks? on a wall uh, that uh, if you look at immigration, if you look at folks coming over the border, it's already down. That is the symbolic wall uh, is what's already there. 
Uh, what do you think can be done to actually get rational immigration reform done? And how can Donald Trump and his administration propel it forward? Well, sitting around the table and everyone talking was a very good start to that. You know, I would note that Donald Trump proposed the wall. It was one of his key promises, one of the top three, I would argue, when he was out on the campaign trail. And uh, he was elected president. So people do want some sort of border security. Many people have wanted it since the 1980s when it was promised by Reagan and never happened. Um, but there's a compromise, and I think the compromise is DACA in exchange for wall funding. And mm-hmm. President Trump moved towards Democrats on DACA. He said, yes, let's find a solution. So I do think it's incumbent upon Democrats to find a way to, to get a little closer to his position. Well, they certainly don't have a lot of leverage right now. The last question, Ivanka Trump, first female president, yay or nay? I love Ivanka. I mean, I, tr- I've sat in a meeting with her, several other women around the table, where I, I'm just completely blown away by her ability to spout off statistics, give, having given thoughtful, thoughtful consideration to issues. Um, I mean, I'd be for it. I, I'm so right. impressed by her. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Get the new book, The New American Revolution, The Making of a Populist Movement. Kaylee McEnany, wow. thank you so much for you being here. you got to write a second time. Woo. Oh, my God. <laughs> so read this book and read all the books and get an interesting perspective. we got to hear all sides here. All right, this is Fox News Talk. Thanks so much for listening. Hail yourselves. Talk to you soon. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say... Yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.